If you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue our march through this letter of 2 Timothy. We have seen thus far that God has good work for us to do. As the people of God, we get to speak the truth in love into the culture around us. Paul has mentioned that in several different ways in chapters 1 and 2. He has said that we share the gospel, that we testify about what the Lord has done in our life, that we entrust the gospel to faithful people who can in turn teach others. We saw last week where Paul said that we are to be kind to everyone, and then we teach them, and we get to do that in love. As we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul begins to talk about the context in which we get to speak the truth in love. What kind of world is it that we share the gospel with? What kind of world is it uh, where we live, where we are kind to everyone and teach them the truth as we speak the truth and love into that world. As I look here at 2 Timothy 3, I must tell you that world that Paul describes is a broken and messed up world. It's a world desperately in need of good news. And even as we read this description from the Apostle Paul, even if you've never read 2 Timothy chapter 3 before, it will ring true if you have read any newspaper or watched any news report. You will see that these things are an accurate description of the world in which we live. And at the end of chapter 2, we learn this concept of patiently enduring evil. And now Paul is going to describe to us that evil that we must endure. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't really like to talk about evil. I like to talk about good stuff, about fun stuff. I'm sort of an optimistic guy. I'm sort of a glass half full guy. I like to see the best in people and look for the best and believe the best about people. But... God has some things that he wants his people to understand about evil. You see it right there in chapter 3 and verse 1 where God says, But understand this. So we're going to venture into this description of evil together because God has some things he wants his people to understand about evil. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad that the Bible is so realistic. God in his word is not producing followers who are naive, but God shoots us straight and he's honest with us about the world that he is calling us to move into and to speak the truth in love into. And he describes and is honest about the people that we're supposed to be kind to. And he says to be kind to everyone teaching them. So we'll take some time to look at that Today, Let me pray for us and then we'll look at what God has for us to understand about evil in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are so honest with us, that you are so realistic, that you don't call us to uh, foolish naivety, but that you call your people to understand the world as it is. And you were honest with us about the world that you send us into. And so, Father, I pray now 
that you would help your people to understand what it is that you would have us to know about evil. And that you would help us to do so even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we talk about the world in which we are being sent into by God to do this good work that he has for us to do, I want us to talk about three questions about the evil that we find there because I believe Paul deals with these three questions. The first question is this, when do we face this evil? Secondly, what does this evil look like? And third, what is our hope against evil? Evil. So let's talk about those three things and answer those three questions from the text that we have before us. First, when do we face this evil? And Paul gives us that answer right here in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. But understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. Now, even as I read that difficulty right there, I must tell you, I think that's a weak translation of that word. The NIV translates it as terrible times. The New Revised Standard Version says distressing times. If you use the King James Version, it says perilous times. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when I read, we will face difficulty. Sometimes I think, well, sorry I was running late, my car wouldn't start, I've had some difficulty. And the word here is describing something deeper, terrible times, distressing times, perilous times. And when is it that we will face those things? Paul says very clearly that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now typically when we talk about the last days, we typically think of that time right before Jesus comes back, right before the second coming of Christ. Those are the last days and we begin to think, oh, are we in the last days? Is Christ's return imminent? But I want you to understand that when the Bible uses the term last days, that is not the reference point at all. In fact, when the Bible talks about the last days, it's talking about that point in time between the first coming of Christ, when the Messiah has come into the world and begun to make all things right. He has begun to push back the effects of evil because he has accomplished a redemption for his people. And the last days are the ministry of Jesus between the the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ when he returns. Let me show you that in the scripture now. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, right at the beginning, the first two verses of the book of Hebrews, we read, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, there's our phrase, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so the writer to Hebrews is explaining that the last days are this time that Jesus has come and begun his ministry and begun the process of pushing back the effects of evil and making all things new. This is Peter's understanding as well. If you read his sermon in Acts chapter 2, as the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and people are confused and asking what happened, Peter says in Acts 2 in verse 17, he says this, In the last days, he's quoting uh, the prophet Joel who's quoting God, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people. 
And so God has said he considers the last days that time when he pours out his spirit as the spirit of Christ and dwells his church and empowers us to do the good work that he has called us to do to continue the ministry of Christ in this world, this ministry of redemption, putting, pushing back the effects of the fall, that God considers that to be the last days. Which, of course, means that we are now living in the last days as the Bible uses that term. And so Paul seems to be concerned here that we as Christians come to grips with the difficulty that will come in these last days. Just to show you in this very context that that's the way Paul is thinking about things as well. If you look in verse 5 of our text... Uh, he is going to list what people are like in the last days. And then at the end of verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, avoid such people. Now that's important because that verb avoid is a present tense imperative. He's saying that at the time of Timothy, as he's pastoring his church, at that time he's giving him the command, avoid these people that will be present in the last days. So even in this context, Paul is considering us to be in the last days even now. While we're there on verse 5, let me just talk about that. What does Paul mean when he says avoid such people? Well, we know that he can't mean don't ever talk with them because in chapter 2 and verse 24, we've just seen that Paul has commanded Timothy to be kind to everyone, teaching them. And in verse 25, he tells Timothy to... Correct his opponents with gentleness is what we're called to do. And if you look in the next chapter, chapter 4 and and verse 5, he tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, which means that Timothy ministers to people who are not saved, they're not regenerate, they're ungodly people. And so this doesn't mean that he's never to talk with them or to never minister to them. So what does this mean when he says avoid such people? Well, this verb avoid literally means to turn yourself away from, to avoid giving yourself to these particular people. In John 2, in verse 24, we're told there that Jesus knew the hearts of a certain group of people, and so he did not entrust himself to them. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't talk with them. He did preach the gospel. It doesn't mean that Jesus was not kind to them. In fact, he actually healed some of those folks and did some miraculous signs and miracles in their presence in order to help them. But we're told Jesus did not give himself to them. He didn't entrust himself to them. And so the idea here is that there are people who are not saved, there are people, we'll see the description in a minute, that we don't entrust ourselves to, we don't give ourselves, we turn ourselves away from them, we don't share our deepest, darkest secrets, we're not prayer partners with them, we don't confess our sin to them or our deepest thoughts or desires or struggles because these folks are not trustworthy with that information. So that seems to be the idea that Paul is talking about here as he tells Timothy to avoid such folks. So we see that in this time that Paul's talking about, in the end times, in the last days, that we are to understand that some people are evil and so we avoid giving ourselves to them. That brings us to our second point. What does this evil look like? 
What are the characteristics of those that I need to not give myself to or that I avoid giving myself or entrusting myself to? And what we have here in verses 2 all the way down to verse 5 and following is a description of evil. In fact, there are 21 different characteristics that I want to look at with you. And I really debated how to handle this because it's a lot. Uh, I thought maybe just group them into categories and summarize them, but they didn't really fit in neat categories. And God saw fit to describe these things to his church. And so I want to be sure that we look at them as well. And so I'm just going to mention the word in the text and give a short commentary on what it means. Just give some synonyms of it. But before I go through that list of 21 things, let me just remind you. Why do we need to keep these things in mind? Why do we need to think about this description of evil? Well, we said that God wants his people to understand some things about evil. And we'll see here in this context that there is such a thing as evil. And we must not be ignorant of it. God wants us to understand its nature and its variety. First, as it appears in our own hearts, and then as it appears in the world around us. So we want to be able to recognize this so that when we see it in ourselves, we can turn from it, we can repent and turn back to Jesus. It gives us a greater appreciation of the gospel as we see the things that we struggle with and know that Jesus died for our being this way. And then also we rejoice in the beauty of the gospel that we're saved from these things and that God is making us new. Also, as we see the list, as we recognize it in the world around us, it helps us to understand what it is we're supposed to correct when we correct opponents with gentleness. It helps us to understand when we're kind to everyone teaching them, what is it that we teach? What is it that we teach for? What is it that we teach against? What is this good work God has for us to do? What is the truth that we speak in love? It is opposing these things and working against these things. So let's dive into the text now together. I'll read the scripture and then give you a short explanation of each one. Verse 2, it begins, For people will be lovers of self. In other words, they're egotistical. Jesus said that the whole law is summarized in love God and love your neighbor, and these folks are lovers of themselves. Next, lovers of money. They're materialistic. Proud. That means they brag. They love to draw attention to their accomplishments. Arrogant. That's an inflated view of self. This word translated proud means you talk about it. This word translated arrogant means you think it on the inside. That's the distinction between the two. Next, abusive. These people want to be hurtful. It can be abusive physically or verbally or emotionally. We'd all be contained under this word abusive. Next, disobedient to their parents. That's describing a rebellious spirit, a disrespect for authority. Ungrateful. It, this word means that people 
assume they have a right to the things that they have. They believe that they are owed something when they're not owed anything at all. Unholy. That's a word means that, that means that they have no appreciation for the weight that should be given to God and to the things of God. They're unholy. Verse 3, heartless. It means they are unable to love. They're unable to sympathize or empathize with other people. Unappeasable. It means unwilling to forgive. Slanderous. It means they tell lies about people or twist the truth or spin the truth. Without self-control, it means they blindly follow their appetites without thinking about the consequences. Brutal, it's a word that means untamed, wild, not civil, dismissive of the ways of humanity. Not loving good, it means these folks are unable to see or appreciate moral beauty. Verse 4, treacherous. It's a word used of traitors, one who breaks their promises for their own advantage, one who is disloyal to people who have been loyal to them because their disloyalty uh, gives them a benefit in some way. Reckless. These are folks who want to be admired for taking risks. They're brash. They don't worry about the consequences and want you to admire them for not worrying about consequences of their actions. Swollen with conceit. This describes a person who is blind to their preoccupation with self. They, they, don't, they can't see how they make everything about themselves. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This, this describes someone who has more desire for their own comfort or their own stimulation than they have desire for or admiration of God. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. It means these folks appear religious but they're not growing in their faith. The power of the gospel is not making a difference in their life. They have an appearance of godliness. They are in the church. They say religious things, but they don't ever grow. There's no life change, and what they say doesn't match what they uh, do. And so that's the first 19 right there. And, and I want to slow down on number 20, because in verses 6 and 7, uh, there is a description of how evil tries to capture those who are vulnerable. But I want to spend a little more time on it, because Paul spends a little more time on it. And this is one of those places that people point to in the scripture to say Paul was anti-women. That Christianity is against women or has a poor or low view of women. That's a misconception of this text, but I want to be sure you understand why it's a misconception. So look with me at verses 6 and 7 now. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And people read that in the scripture and they say, wow, Paul thinks women are weak, that they're easily led astray. The word Paul actually uses there is a word for little women, small women. It's, it is a derogatory term uh, that is used by Paul in this context. But understand what's going on here. 
This, in verses 6 and 7, is not a description of women. This is a description of evil. And it's saying that evil seeks to capture those who are most vulnerable. So this is a description of evil, and it's not a description of women, because Paul doesn't use the term women to describe them. He uses weak women, small women, these vulnerable women. And we can understand why, in Timothy's context, they would have been. Because in Ephesus, at the time this was being written, women were uneducated. They were neglected. It says here they're left in their households alone. They're not going out. And these women are uneducated. They're neglected. They haven't been taught the truths of the faith. And so Paul is saying those are the the vulnerable. That's what evil seeks to capture is the vulnerable. So he's describing the situation that took place there in Ephesus. But I want to be clear. Christianity has changed that. Right? That's what Paul is saying here. If you read back on the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus had women among his followers. That was unusual for a Jewish rabbi. Jesus was willing to teach women. If you remember the story of Mary and Martha in the book of Luke, Martha is back working in the kitchen. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus as a disciple, learning at the feet of Jesus. And Martha comes and says, Jesus, tell my sister to come help me get everything ready in the kitchen. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is best and it will not be taken from her. So Christianity changed this situation. I want you to understand very clearly, it is not God's will for women to be weak in the faith. It is not God's will for women to be uneducated or neglected. It is God's will that the women that are a part of his family, that are in his church, be educated. That they be discerning. That they be wise women. So even as I say that, I just want to say now that I am so thankful for the women's ministry here at our church and the work that our women's ministry team does. I know there are a couple of Bible studies that meet weekly. I know there's a monthly meeting of folks where things are discussed. I know there's an annual retreat, and I'm so thankful for the ministry to women here at our church. But don't forget the point Paul is making here, that evil seeks to capture those who are most vulnerable. And that means that in addition to having a strong women's ministry, we need to have a strong children's ministry so that our children are not exposed to or not vulnerable to evil which seeks to capture the most vulnerable. It means we need to have a strong youth ministry. It means we need to have a strong men's ministry. And I appreciate what we do as a men's ministry and I'm so thankful for the guys who lead that. But I want to say a word to the men of this church. I believe that if Paul were writing this to me as a young pastor at this church, I don't believe he would say, watch out for the weak women. I believe he would say, watch out for your weak men. You see, the women have twice as many Bible studies in a week as we do. And their attendance at those Bible studies are probably three times the number of people that come to our weekly studies. We don't have a monthly meeting. We do have an annual retreat. 
But again, it is not God's will that anyone in his family be weak or uneducated or neglected. It is not God's will that we would not be discerning, that we would not be wise. It's not his will that any would be burdened with sin, as the text talks about. He wants us to have this freedom that comes with the gospel. It's not God's will that any in his household will be led astray by passions. And that happens sometimes when we don't know what God's passions are because we don't know what he says his passions are in his word. And so we naturally follow our own passions. I want you to know that the leadership of our church is taking this very seriously. This Saturday morning, you can be praying for our time together. We will meet at the church as a leadership together and our session will be discussing the process we have in place for strengthening members of this church. How is it that we can better equip the saints for the work of ministry? How is it that we can better make disciples, strengthen disciples, establish disciples in the faith? How is it that we can do better as a leadership in offering ways for the members of this church to not be weak, to not be uneducated, to not be neglected, but that they would be discerning, wise people in the kingdom of God. Please pray for our time together as we continue to plan and continue to work at those meetings. But until the fruit of that labor begins, let me ask you, are you in the word? Are you spending time there? That's what equips us. It's what strengthens us so that we're not captured, we're not vulnerable to evil. Because we know God's word and we live out God's word. I want to say a word to parents now. Parents, I'm especially burdened for those of us who have children. Because while in the past we've been able to depend on Sunday school to help us spiritually strengthen our children, we can't depend on Sunday school now because it's not meeting. While in the past we've had the help of teachers or coaches to come around our children and reinforce what we're doing, we're not meeting in schools, we're not having organized sports, which means more of this burden is following us, following, falling on us as parents. Are you using this time, this precious time, do you see it as a gift that you get to have with your children to strengthen them and have them be greater established in the faith. We have videos that come out every week that equip you for that. Be looking for more this week. This is important because evil seeks to creep in and capture the vulnerable. And we don't want anyone in our midst to be vulnerable to the devices of evil. That was the 20th characteristic that evil seeks to capture the vulnerable. Number 21, briefly, Evil opposes the truth. You see it there in verses 8 and 9. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in their mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men. So evil opposes truth. It opposes that speaking the truth in love that we're called to do is the good work that God has for us to do. Before I move to my 
third point, I just want to take a moment to apply these truths, these, these 21 characteristics that we see of evil. Perhaps one of them has been working on your heart. Maybe you see some of these things in your own life, and we certainly see it in the world around us. It would be appropriate for us to grieve these things, to pray about these things, that when we see these things in our own life, that we'd be quick to repent, to turn from these things and pursue holiness. My prayer has been that this study would give us a greater love for the gospel, that we see what the gospel frees us from and what the gospel frees us to, and it would be more beautiful to us as we see the alternative to what God wants to do in our lives. And as we see these things in the world around us, my prayer has been that we would be wise and discerning and that we would correct those things with gentleness. That we would be kind to everyone teaching these things as true. And that we would speak the truth in love to the culture around us. May God use us in that way. Well, let's look at that third thing that Paul deals with here. What is our hope against evil? Let's get to the hope that we have. And I'll go ahead and tell you in verses 10 to 13... Paul talks about our hope being in suffering and in rescue. In suffering and in rescue. That is our hope against evil. Be listening for those concepts in verses 10 through 13. Paul writes, You, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What is Paul saying here? He's saying there is suffering in this world of evil as we move out into it to do good, that we will face suffering. There is a way to avoid suffering. If we do not oppose evil, then we will not suffer. If we don't mess with evil, it doesn't really mess with us. But to be the people of God in this generation... If we are going to speak the truth in love into the culture, it means that there's going to be some suffering and some persecution that comes our way. We've said before that sharing the gospel will mean suffering for the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says it there. You hear him talking about it. He says, Timothy, you know this is true. You've seen it. He's saying, you've seen my life, my conduct, my aim. You've traveled with me. You've seen my ministry. And he lists three different cities where Timothy was with him. And he's saying, Tim, you've seen this. You know that if you reach out to a world speaking the truth in love, that you will be persecuted and you will suffer because you've seen it happen to me. And then Paul makes very clear in verse 12, indeed, it's not just Paul, but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. So if we're the people of God, 
in a culture like the one we live in, then evil will, will respond in a way that makes us suffer. It's coming. Don't be surprised by it. Take comfort in it. In fact, I would even say hope for it. Why would we hope for suffering or persecution? It means we're on the right track. It means that we are doing the good that God has called us to do. It means that we are speaking the truth in love if we suffer not for being jerks, but suffer for Jesus. Jesus said to himself in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, right after he gives the Beatitudes, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? The next thing he says is, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Then he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what Jesus says, that we would even hope for suffering for the gospel because it means that we're on the right track because it happened to the saints that went on before and it will happen to us as well as we do the good work that God has called for us to do in a hostile culture. If you're not suffering for the gospel, my guess is that you are not sharing the gospel and this is a call to you to get on the right track. But of course, that's not all there is to our hope. Our hope is not just suffering. Our hope is also that the Lord rescues those who are his. You see it there in verse 11 of the text where Paul says that he endured these persecutions, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now let's talk about what this word rescue means. What does he mean when he says that? Well, he's not saying that he was rescued from suffering. Because he says he did suffer. He's not saying he was rescued from persecution because he was persecuted, right? And he's promising us we will be too if we follow in his steps and do the work God has for us to do. So what's the rescue that God promises for his people? Is Paul saying, well, I, I was rescued. I had my physical life. I was almost killed, but I wasn't killed. I was just beaten. I don't think that's what it is. Because Paul's in a Roman prison right now and knows that he's about to die. So the rescue is not physical life. I will show you from the text this conclusion. But what I believe Paul is saying, the rescue that is guaranteed for believers is this. The rescue is from falling away from the faith. We are rescued from an eternity in hell. And we're rescued from the evil in this world. Let me show you how Paul says that in the text. In chapter 4, in verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this to Timothy. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul knows he's about to die. He's been sentenced to death. He will soon be executed. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is saying, my faith hasn't been wrecked. In chapter 1, he talked about those in Asia who are turning away. In chapter 2, he talked about those who have swerved from the truth. He's saying, I've kept the faith. I've remained true to the God who has been true to me. 
And so Paul says, first of all, we're rescued from losing our faith. God gives us strength to stand even against suffering and persecution. He goes on in chapter 4 and verse 15. He talks about someone who strongly opposes him, just like he promises will be opposed. In verse 16, he says, At my defense, no one came to stand by me. But look at verse 17. He gets this idea of rescue. He says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Where do we get the strength to do the good work that God calls us to do in a hostile world? The Lord strengthens us. Look what Paul says. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. The strengthening from God is so that the gospel may be proclaimed. Not that we won't suffer, not that we won't be persecuted. The strength is that we endure so that we can testify about the Lord. And then he says it, right? All the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued, same word as above, from the lion's mouth. What does he mean by the lion? Could be a reference to Rome. Could be a reference to he wasn't thrown in the Colosseum. I don't think so because he's in a Roman prison and he's about to be executed by the Roman authorities. I believe the reference here being saved from the lion's mouth is he's saved from Satan. He's saved from hell. In our benediction in 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll see Satan referred to as a roaring lion that seeks to destroy people. And so Paul says, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue. There's our concept again. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, when Paul was killed, when he was executed there in Rome, shortly after writing this letter, at that time, Paul was rescued. He was rescued from this world of evil into the heavenly kingdom. You see, Paul did not abandon the faith. He was rescued and strengthened so that he could stand firm. Paul did not go to hell. He was rescued from it and delivered to the heavenly kingdom. And Paul no longer lives in this world of evil. He was rescued from it. And that is the hope that the Lord gives to us as well. So I call you to stand firm in the faith. I call you to be faithful to the God who has been so faithful to you. He will strengthen you and enable you to stand against opposition as you do the good work that he calls you to do. I call you to patiently endure evil. And as we do that, we patiently endure that evil knowing that a day is coming when evil will be no more. First, when our physical life is over, we're freed from the sin within us. We are free from that struggle that we experience with the evil that is inside of us. And when Jesus returns to this earth, evil will be done away with in all its forms in this place. It's what we sang this morning when we sang, I will rise when he calls my name, no more sorrow, no more pain. The scripture says there'll be no more tears, that there'll be no more crying. 
Because there will be nothing to cry about. God will make all things new. That is our hope. I must tell you, if you are looking for heaven in this world at this time, you will not find it. There is no heaven on the earth that we live on now. At best, it is a mixture of sweetness and bitterness like we sang in the songs that we sang today. So don't look for heaven on earth. This book does not promise us that we live our best life now. In fact, it says just the opposite. We will suffer now, but we can hope in that because a day is coming when Jesus will make us new and he'll make all things new and we live our best life then. So let's endure in the present, knowing that that day is a certainty. Pray with me that God would strengthen us to do so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you strengthen your people. Thank you that you give us good work to do, that you use us to push back the effects of evil in this world. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to stand firm, to be faithful to you, to patiently endure evil, even as we know that one day you will make all things right within us and without. Until then, strengthen us for your glory and our good, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.